Chapter Two, Volume One of Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by John Greenman. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Chapter Two: The Fairy Tree of Domremy. Our Domremy was like any other humble little hamlet of that remote time and region. It was a maze of crooked, narrow lanes and alleys shaded and sheltered by the overhanging thatch-roofs of the barn-like houses. The houses were dimly lighted by wooden-shuttered windows, that is, holes in the walls which served for windows. The floors were dirt, and there was very little furniture. Sheep and cattle grazing was the main industry. All the young folks tended flocks. The situation was beautiful. From one edge of the village a flowery plain extended in a wide sweep to the river, the Meuse. From the rear edge of the village a grassy slope rose gradually, and at the top was the great oak forest, a forest that was deep and gloomy and dense, and full of interest for us children, for many murders had been done in it by outlaws in old times, and in still earlier times prodigious dragons that spouted fire and poisonous vapors from their nostrils had their homes in there in fact one was still living in there in our own time it was as long as a tree and had a body as big around as a tierce and scales like overlapping great tiles and deep ruby eyes as large as a cavalier's hat and an anchor fluke on its tail as big as i don't know what but very big even unusually so for a dragon, as everybody said who knew about dragons. It was thought that this dragon was of a brilliant blue color, with gold mottlings, but no one had ever seen it, therefore this was not known to be so, it was only an opinion. It was not my opinion, I think there is no sense in forming an opinion when there is no evidence to form it on. If you build a person without any bones in him he may look fair enough to the eye, but he will be limber and cannot stand up. And I consider that evidence is the bones of an opinion. But I will take up this matter more at large at another time, and try to make the justness of my position appear. As to that dragon, I always held the belief that its color was gold and without blue, for that has always been the color of dragons. That this dragon lay but a little way within the wood at one time is shown by the fact that Pierre Morel was in there one day and smelt it, and recognized it by the smell. It gives one a horrid idea of how near to us the deadliest danger can be, and we not suspect it. In the earliest times a hundred knights from many remote places in the earth would have gone in there one after another to kill the dragon and get the reward, but in our time that method had gone out, and the priest had become the one that abolished dragons. Père Guillaume Fronte did it in this case. He had a procession with candles and incense and banners, and marched around the edge of the wood and exorcised the dragon, and it was never heard of again, although it was the opinion of many that the smell never wholly passed away. Not that any had ever smelt the smell again, for none had. It was only an opinion, like that other, and lacked bones, you see. I know that the creature was there before the exorcism, but whether it was there afterward or not is a thing which I cannot be so positive about. In a noble open space carpeted with grass on the high ground toward Vaucouleurs 
stood a most majestic beech-tree with wide-reaching arms and a grand spread of shade and by it a limpid spring of cold water and on summer days the children went there oh every summer for more than five hundred years went there and sang and danced around the tree for hours together refreshing themselves at the spring from time to time and it was most lovely and enjoyable also they made wreaths of flowers and hung them upon the tree and about the spring to please the fairies that lived there for they liked that being idle innocent little creatures as all fairies are and fond of anything delicate and pretty like wild flowers put together in that way and in return for this attention the fairies did any friendly thing they could for the children such as keeping the spring always full and clear and cold and driving away serpents and insects that sting and so there was never any unkindness between the fairies and the children during more than five hundred years tradition said a thousand but only the warmest affection and the most perfect trust and confidence and whenever a child died the fairies mourned just as that child's playmates did and the sign of it was there to see for before the dawn on the day of the funeral they hung a little immortelle over the place where that child was used to sit under the tree i know this to be true by my own eyes it is not hearsay and the reason it was known that the fairies did it was this that it was made all of black flowers of a sort not known in france anywhere now from time immemorial all children reared in domremy were called the children of the tree and they loved that name for it carried with it a mystic privilege not granted to any others of the children of this world which was this whenever one of these came to die then beyond the vague and formless images drifting through his darkening mind rose soft and rich and fair a vision of the tree if all was well with his soul that was what some said others said the vision came in two ways once as a warning one or two years in advance of death when the soul was the captive of sin and then the tree appeared in its desolate winter aspect then that soul was smitten with an awful fear if repentance came and purity of life the vision came again this time summer-clad and beautiful but if it were otherwise with that soul the vision was withheld and it passed from life knowing its doom still others said that the vision came but once and then only to the sinless dying forlorn in distant lands and pitifully longing for some last dear reminder of their home and what reminder of it could go to their hearts like the picture of the tree that was the darling of their love and the comrade of their joys and comforter of their small griefs all through the divine days of their vanished youth now the several traditions were as i have said some believing one and some another one of them i knew to be the truth and that was the last one i do not say anything against the others i think they were true but i only know that the last one was and it is my thought that if one keep to the things he knows and not trouble about the things which he cannot be sure about he will have the steadier mind for it and there is profit in that i know that when the children of the tree die in a far land then if they be at peace with god they turn their longing eyes toward home and there far shining as through a rift in a cloud that curtains heaven 
they see the soft picture of the fairy tree clothed in a dream of golden light and they see the bloomy mead sloping away to the river and to their perishing nostrils is blown faint and sweet the fragrance of the flowers of home and then the vision fades and passes but they know they know and by their transfigured faces you know also you who stand looking on yes you know the message that has come and that it has come from heaven joan and i believed alike about this matter but pierre morel and jacques d'arc and many others believed that the vision appeared twice to a sinner in fact they and many others said they knew it probably because their fathers had known it and had told them for one gets most things at second hand in this world now one thing that does make it quite likely that there were really two apparitions of the tree is this fact from the most ancient times if one saw a villager of ours with his face ash white and rigid with a ghastly fright it was common for every one to whisper to his neighbor ah he is in sin and has got his warning and the neighbor would shudder at the thought and whisper back yes poor soul he has seen the tree such evidences as these have their weight they are not to be put aside with a wave of the hand a thing that is backed by the cumulative evidence of centuries naturally gets nearer and nearer to being proof all the time and if this continue and continue it will some day become authority and authority is a bedded rock and will abide in my long life i have seen several cases where the tree appeared announcing a death which was still far away but in none of these was the person in a state of sin no the apparition was in these cases only a special grace in place of deferring the tidings of that soul's redemption till the day of death the apparition brought them long before and with them peace peace that might no more be disturbed the eternal peace of god i myself old and broken wait with serenity for i have seen the vision of the tree i have seen it and am content always from the remotest times when the children joined hands and danced around the fairy tree they sang a song which was the tree's song the song of l'arfe de bourmont they sang it to a quaint sweet air a solacing sweet air which has gone murmuring through my dreaming spirit all my life when i was weary and troubled resting me and carrying me through night and distance home again no stranger can know or feel what that song has been through the drifting centuries to exiled children of the tree homeless and heavy of heart in countries foreign to their speech and ways you will think it a simple thing that song and poor perchance but if you will remember what it was to us and what it brought before our eyes when it floated through our memories then you will respect it and you will understand how the water wells up in our eyes and makes all things dim and our voices break and we cannot sing the last lines and when in exile's wandering we shall fainting yearn for glimpse of thee oh rise upon our sight and you will remember that joan of arc sang this song with us around the tree when she was a little girl and always loved it and that hallows it yes you will grant that 
L'Arbe Fée de Bourlemont, Song of the Children. Now what has kept your leaves so green, Arbe Fée de Bourlemont? The children's tears, they brought each grief, and you did comfort them and cheer their bruised hearts, and steal a tear that healed rose a leaf. And what has built you up so strong, Arfe de Bourlemont? The children's love, they've loved you long ten hundred years, in sooth. They've nourished you with praise and song, and warmed your heart and kept it young a thousand years of youth. Bide always green in our young hearts, Arfe de Bourlemont, and we shall always youthful be, not heeding time his flight and when in exile wandering we shall fainting yearn for glimpse of thee oh rise upon our sight the fairies were still there when we were children but we never saw them because a hundred years before that the priest of domremy had held a religious function under the tree and denounced them as being blood-kin to the fiend and barred them from redemption and then he warned them never to show themselves again, nor hang any more immortels, on pain of perpetual banishment from that parish. All the children pleaded for the fairies, and said they were their good friends and dear to them, and never did them any harm. But the priest would not listen, and said it was sin and shame to have such friends. The children mourned and could not be comforted, and they made an agreement among themselves that they would always continue to hang flower-wreaths on the tree as a perpetual sign to the fairies that they were still loved and remembered, though lost to sight. But late one night a great misfortune befell. Edmond Aubry's mother passed by the tree, and the fairies were stealing a dance, not thinking anybody was by. And they were so busy and so intoxicated with the wild happiness of it, and with the bumpers of dew sharpened up with honey which they had been drinking, that they noticed nothing. So Dame Aubry stood there astonished and admiring, and saw the little fantastic atoms holding hands, as many as three hundred of them, tearing around in a great ring half as big as an ordinary bedroom, and leaning away back and spreading their mouths with laughter and song, which she could hear quite distinctly and kicking their legs up as much as three inches from the ground in perfect abandon and hilarity. Oh, the very maddest and witchingest dance the woman ever saw! But in about a minute or two minutes the poor little ruined creatures discovered her. They burst out in one heart-breaking squeak of grief and terror, and fled every which way, with their wee hazelnut fists in their eyes and crying, and so disappeared. The heartless woman— no, the foolish woman, she was not heartless, but only thoughtless, went straight home and told the neighbors all about it, whilst we, the small friends of the fairies, were asleep, and not witting the calamity that was come upon us, and all unconscious that we ought to be up and trying to stop these fatal tongues. In the morning everybody knew, and the disaster was complete, for where everybody knows a thing the priest knows it, of course. We all flocked to Père Fronté, crying and begging, and he had to cry too, seeing our sorrow, for he had a most kind and gentle nature, and he did not want to banish the fairies, and said so, but said he had no choice, for it had been decreed that if they ever revealed themselves to man again, they must go. 
this all happened at the worst time possible for joan of arc was ill of a fever and out of her head and what could we do who had not her gifts of reasoning and persuasion we flew in a swarm to her bed and cried out joan wake wake there is no moment to lose come and plead for the fairies come and save them only you can do it but her mind was wandering she did not know what we said nor what we meant so we went away knowing all was lost yes all was lost forever lost the faithful friends of the children for five hundred years must go and never come back any more it was a bitter day for us that day that pere front held the function under the tree and banished the fairies we could not wear mourning that any could have noticed it would not have been allowed so we had to be content with some poor small rag of black tied upon our garments where it made no show but in our hearts we wore mourning big and noble and occupying all the room for our hearts were ours they could not get at them to prevent that the great tree l'arbre de bourlemont was its beautiful name was never afterward quite as much to us as it had been before but it was always dear is dear to me yet when i go there now once a year in my old age to sit under it and bring back the lost playmates of my youth and group them about me and look upon their faces through my tears and break my heart oh my god no the place was not quite the same afterward in one or two ways it could not be for the fairy's protection being gone the spring lost much of its freshness and coldness and more than two-thirds of its volume and the banished serpents and stinging insects returned and multiplied and became a torment and have remained so to this day when that wise little child joan got well we realized how much her illness had cost us for we found that we had been right in believing she could save the fairies she burst into a great storm of anger for so little a creature and went straight to pere front and stood up before him where he sat and made reverence and said the fairies were to go if they showed themselves to people again is it not so yes that it was dear if a man comes prying into a person's room at midnight when that person is half naked will you be so unjust as to say that that person is showing himself to that man well no the good priest looked a little troubled and uneasy when he said it is a sin a sin anyway even if one did not intend to commit it pere front threw up his hands and cried out oh my poor little child i see all my fault and he drew her to his side and put an arm around her and tried to make his peace with her but her temper was up so high that she could not get it down right away but buried her head against his breast and broke out crying and said then the fairies committed no sin for there was no intention to commit one they not knowing that any one was by and because they were little creatures and could not speak for themselves and say the law was against the intention not against the innocent act because they had no friend to think that simple thing for them and say it they have been sent away from their home forever and it was wrong wrong to do it the good father hugged her yet closer to his side and said oh out of the mouths of babes and sucklings the heedless and unthinking are condemned would god i could bring the little creatures back for your sake and mine yes and mine for i have been unjust 
there there don't cry nobody could be sorrier than your poor old friend don't cry dear but i can't stop right away i've got to and it is no little matter this thing that you have done is being sorry penance enough for such an act pere front turned away his face for it would have hurt her to see him laugh and said oh thou remorseless but most just accuser no it is not i will put on sackcloth and ashes there are you satisfied joan's sobs began to diminish and she presently looked up at the old man through her tears and said in her simple way yes that will do if it will clear you pere front would have been moved to laugh again perhaps if he had not remembered in time that he had made a contract and not a very agreeable one it must be fulfilled so he got up and went to the fireplace joan watched him with deep interest and took a shovelful of cold ashes and was going to empty them on his old gray head when a better idea came to him and he said would you mind helping me dear how father he got down on his knees and bent his head low and said take the ashes and put them on my head for me the matter ended there of course the victory was with the priest one can imagine how the idea of such a profanation would strike joan or any other child in the village she ran and dropped upon her knees by his side and said oh it is dreadful i didn't know that that was what one meant by sackcloth and ashes do please get up father but i can't until i am forgiven do you forgive me i oh you have done nothing to me father it is yourself that must forgive yourself for wrong-doing those poor things please get up father won't you but i am worse off now than i was before i thought i was earning your forgiveness but if it is my own i can't be lenient it would not become me now what can i do find me some way out of this with your wise little head the pair would not stir for all joan's pleadings she was about to cry again then she had an idea and seized the shovel and deluged her own head with the ashes stammering out through her chokings and suffocations there now it is done oh please get up father the old man both touched and amused gathered her to his breast and said oh you incomparable child it's a humble martyrdom and not of a sort presentable in a picture but the right and true spirit is in it that i testify then he brushed the ashes out of her hair and helped her scour her face and neck and properly tidy herself up he was in fine spirits now and ready for further argument so he took his seat and drew joan to his side again and said joan you were used to make fairy wreaths there at the fairy tree with the other children is it not so that was the way he always started out when he was going to corner me up and catch me in something just that gentle indifferent way that fools a person so and leads him into the trap he never noticing which way he is traveling until he is in and the door shut on him he enjoyed that i knew he was going to drop corn along in front of joan now joan answered yes father did you hang them on the tree no father didn't hang them there no why didn't you i well i didn't wish to didn't wish to no father what did you do with them 
I hung them in the church. Why didn't you want to hang them in the tree? Because it was said that the fairies were of kin to the fiend, and that it was sinful to show them honor. Did you believe it was wrong to honor them so? Yes, I thought it must be wrong. Then if it was wrong to honor them in that way, and if they were of kin to the fiend, they could be dangerous company for you and the other children, couldn't they? I suppose so. Yes, I think so. He studied a minute, and I judged he was going to spring his trap, and he did. He said, Then the matter stands like this. They were banned creatures of fearful origin. They could be dangerous company for the children. Now give me a rational reason, dear, if you can think of any, why you call it a wrong to drive them into banishment, and why you would have saved them from it. In a word, what loss have you suffered by it? How stupid of him to go and throw his case away like that! I could have boxed his ears for vexation if he had been a boy. He was going along all right until he ruined everything by winding up in that foolish and fatal way. What had she lost by it? Was he never going to find out what kind of a child Joan of Arc was? Was he never going to learn that things which merely concerned her own gain or loss she cared nothing about? Could he never get the simple fact into his head that the sure way and the only way to rouse her up and set her on fire was to show her where some other person was going to suffer wrong or hurt or loss? Why, he had gone and set a trap for himself. That was all he had accomplished. The minute those words were out of his mouth her temper was up, the indignant tears rose in her eyes, and she burst out on him with an energy and passion which astonished him, but didn't astonish me, for I knew he had fired a mine when he touched off his ill-chosen climax. "'Oh, father, how can you talk like that? Who owns France?' "'God and the King. Not Satan?' "'Satan, my child, this is the footstool of the Most High. Satan owns no handful of its soil.' "'Then who gave those poor creatures their home? God. Who protected them in it all those centuries? God. Who allowed them to dance and play there all those centuries and found no fault with it? God.' Who disapproved of God's approval and put a threat upon them? A man. Who caught them again in harmless sports that God allowed and a man forbade, and carried out that threat, and drove the poor things away from the home the good God gave them in His mercy and His pity, and sent down His rain and dew and sunshine upon it five hundred years in token of His peace? It was their home, theirs, by the grace of God and His good heart, and no man had a right to rob them of it. And they were the gentlest, truest friends that children ever had, and did them sweet and loving service all these five long centuries, and never any hurt or harm. And the children loved them, and now they mourn for them, and there is no healing for their grief. And what had the children done that they should suffer this cruel stroke? The poor fairies could have been dangerous company for the children? Yes, but never had been, and could is no argument. Kinsmen of the fiend? What of it? Kinsmen of the fiend have rights, and these had, and children have rights, and these had, and if I had been there I would have spoken, 
i would have begged for the children and the fiends and stayed your hand and saved them all but now oh now all is lost everything is lost and there is no help more then she finished with a blast at that idea that fairy kinsmen of the fiend ought to be shunned and denied human sympathy and friendship because salvation was barred against them she said that for that very reason people ought to pity them and do every humane and loving thing they could to make them forget the hard fate that had been put upon them by accident of birth and no fault of their own poor little creatures she said what can a person's heart be made of that can pity a christian's child and yet can't pity a devil's child that a thousand times more needs it she had torn loose from pere front and was crying with her knuckles in her eyes and stamping her small feet in a fury and now she burst out of the place and was gone before we could gather our senses together out of this storm of words and this whirlwind of passion the pair had got upon his feet toward the last and now he stood there passing his hand back and forth across his forehead like a person who is dazed and troubled then he turned and wandered toward the door of his little workroom and as he passed through it i heard him murmur sorrowfully ah me poor children poor fiends they have rights and she said true i never thought of that god forgive me i am to blame when i heard that i knew i was right in the thought that he had set a trap for himself it was so and he had walked into it you see i seemed to feel encouraged and wondered if mayhap i might get him into one but upon reflection my heart went down for this was not my gift End of chapter 2